who doesn't love a fairy tale? There's typically the promise of a makeover, at least one or two musical numbers, and love prevails in the end. When we grow up, we realize that fairy tales are just that, tales. Despite this realization, it seems like a few common fairy tale themes are still pervasive today, from believing only good things come from nature to clearly defined good guys and villains. Our fairy tale habit is hard to break. Although there is no magic wand to instantly solve all our problems, our ability to continuously innovate and devise new methods for growing healthy crops is pretty magical when you think about it. Even more magical is our ingenuity in overcoming some of the limitations of nature to create fertilizer on the scale we need to grow our food. Plants are the starting point for all our food, whether that means the plants we eat or the plants that we feed our farm animals. Even lab-grown meat starts with nutrients from plants. All these foods that trace back to plants give us the carbohydrates and fats that provide us the energy to live, and also the proteins, vitamins, and minerals we need to thrive and grow. So what do plants eat? What makes plants so special is that to get their energy, they don't have to eat like we do. That's because they have the unique ability to get their energy from the sun via photosynthesis. They can actually make the carbohydrates and fats that power the survival and growth of their cells. Those biological molecules are made from various combinations of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. But plants do need to be fed other non-energy nutrients. The top three nutrients that plants need as food are nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And they also need smaller amounts of things like sulfur, calcium, magnesium, zinc, and iron. Other than more unusual cases like insect-eating plants, the way these foods get into the plant is through their roots. Whether the plant is grown in a soil, an artificial potting mix, or just in water via hydroponics, their roots have to absorb these foods we usually call fertilizers. In nature, most of these mineral nutrients for plants originate in rocks and become available through the process of weathering to generate soils. Within soils, there are certain amounts of these minerals in forms that can be absorbed by the plant's roots. But one important plant food has a more complicated backstory for it to become something a plant can pick up through its roots. That crucial plant food is the element nitrogen. Now, nitrogen is extremely abundant in nature. Nitrogen gas, which is made of just two nitrogen atoms connected by a triple bond, makes up about 78% of our atmosphere. But just like the old saying about ocean water, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink, that atmospheric nitrogen isn't at all available to plants or to us or to other animals. To be plant available, nitrogen has to be in forms like ammonium or nitrate or urea. There are two natural ways that the inert nitrogen gas in the air gets converted into those plant-available forms. One way is during a lightning strike. This mighty electrical discharge in the atmosphere turns some of the N2 into available forms, and as it rains and that nitrogen comes down, it effectively becomes fertilizer for the soil. But there's an even more important way that nitrogen gas gets converted to plant food, and that's by the remarkable work of certain bacteria. 
Now, we tend to think of bacteria as organisms that can make us sick, but the vast majority of bacterial species are either neutral or beneficial for our survival. And there's a particular kind of bacteria that has the ability to take the inert N2 gas from the air and turn it into the forms that the plant can absorb via its roots, the nitrate, ammonium, or urea. We describe these particular bacteria as nitrogen-fixing. And there's an important family of plants we call legumes that have a special cooperative relationship with a nitrogen-fixing bacterium called rhizobium. So the legumes provide housing for the beneficial bacteria in these little protective gall structures on their roots. And then the plant also provides a healthy dose of its sun-based energy as sugars that feed the bacteria. There are both wild and domesticated species of legumes, including important crops that are great sources of nitrogen-rich proteins that we need in our diet. Example of legume crops include soybeans, various dry beans, lentils, chickpeas, and, and other pulse crops. And farmers will also sometimes grow non-food legume cover crops to leave some nitrogen in the soil that can be picked up later by the crops that don't have that special relationship with nitrogen-fixing bacteria. There are other bacteria out there that can fix nitrogen for crops but don't have the specialized relationship seen in legumes. For instance, there are bacteria that live on the leaves of sugarcane, and they provide that crop with at least some of its needed nitrogen. And there are also some bacteria that can fix nitrogen living inconspicuously inside various crops, and we call them endophytes. There's a startup company called Pivot Bio that is working on ways to optimize that kind of relationship in a crop like corn, and it might be possible for the bacteria to supply as much as 20% of the nitrogen that important crop needs. When humans began to grow their own food about 10,000 years ago, the supply of nitrogen was typically a limiting factor for the productivity of farms. So for many important crops that were not legumes, people found other sources of fertilizer. If they were farming near the ocean, they could use seaweed and fish meal. Another source was big deposits of guano, or bird poop, that can be found in major nesting sites. Even human waste, otherwise known as night soil, can and has been used as a fertilizer. But the biggest source was typically the manure that came from the animals that people had domesticated. These were the main nitrogen fertilizers for non-legume crops for millennia. Now, there was a real limit to how much crop growth could ever be supported from animal poop and the various other natural sources. What I'd like to point out is, unlike nitrogen-fixing bacteria, Cows don't make fertilizer. For instance, when a cow or a pig or a chicken or a wild bird eats a plant, it absorbs and uses most of the fertilizer nutrients like nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus that were present in that feed. But animals fail to absorb all the nutrients, so some are left in the manure. If that manure is put back on the crop, it can act as a fertilizer. But it's a limited supply. I once interviewed a USDA expert on the utilization of manures, and he estimated that only 5% of our current crops could ever be adequately fertilized with just the available manure and the other things available from natural sources. So until the early 20th century, total farm productivity was limited to the amount of nitrogen that came from lightning, legume crops, manures, and other plant or animal-based sources. It's been estimated that this original nitrogen supply could never have fed more than about 1.5 billion people, and certainly not our current population of 7 billion. 
It wasn't until the 19th century that humans even understood the chemical makeup of our world. But when chemistry first began to emerge as a science, there was a widespread belief that substances coming from the living part of nature were somehow different from the specific man-made chemicals. It was thought that the chemicals from nature had a vital force that couldn't be imitated with synthetic chemicals. The debunking of this vitalism idea began in 1828 when the German chemist Friedrich Wohler made urea from inorganic compounds and showed that it had exactly the same properties as the urea in the urine of animals. And once people realized that the atmosphere contained an essentially unlimited supply of nitrogen, the question became how to convert that into a form that could feed crops. In the early 20th century, Two German scientists worked out a way to turn nitrogen from the air into ammonia and subsequently to other plant-available forms of nitrogen. Fritz Haber worked out the basic chemistry and Karl Bosch developed a high-pressure catalyst method that increased the scale of production. Both scientists received Nobel Prizes for developing the combined Haber-Bosch process, forever revolutionizing farming and crop productivity beyond the limits of legumes and salvageable nutrients left in animal waste. This new source of nitrogen food for plants is now called synthetic nitrogen, a term that's actually quite misleading. The forms of nitrogen in something like animal manure start off as diverse and complex molecules like proteins or nucleic acids, but once the manure is in a wet soil environment, the bacteria living there mineralize those fertilizers into the simpler forms that plants can absorb, like the ammonia, nitrate, and urea. And ammonia is also the form of nitrogen that those nitrogen-fixing bacteria provide for their legume host plants. The synthetic nitrogen fertilizer made through the Haber-Bosch process also starts with ammonia, and that can be turned into the other forms. And once it is, it's in the same forms of the mineralized organic fertilizers. Once nitrogen is in these forms that can be used by a plant, there is no difference to the plant, whether that end started out as something we call natural or synthetic. To the plant, these foods were identical. Today, when you read an organic product label or hear the organic rules, they'll typically say that the crop was grown without synthetic or artificial fertilizers. That makes it sound like there's some real difference. But that concept is a throwback to the long-debunked concept of vitalism. That idea that the chemical from nature has some magic property that can't be synthesized. This actually gets a bit absurd in the rules for organic. Because as I mentioned, cows don't make fertilizer. Organic farmers wouldn't be able to grow very much in the way of crops if they could only use manures from animals that were raised on organic feed crops. Thus, the rules also allow organic farmers to use the manures from conventionally fed animals. So, nitrogen atoms captured from the atmosphere by the Haber-Bosch process are taken up by a crop and then later fed to animals. And those same atoms then magically become okay for organic once they've gone through the digestive system of an animal and come out as manure. Organic farmers are also allowed to use blood meal and bone meal from those conventionally fed animals. Those later sources are perhaps safer than manure or composted manure from a microbial safety point of view, but I'm not sure that sounds so great to a consumer. Now, there are some functional differences between organic and conventional fertilizers. The synthetic fertilizers that are already in the plant-usable forms can rapidly feed the plant, but particularly when the nitrogen is in the nitrate form, 
It can move in the water that runs off of a field during a heavy rain or leach down into the zone below the roots and even to the groundwater below. The nitrogen in manure or other organic forms of fertilizer is released more slowly by that mineralization process. And that can be a good thing to avoid losses in water pollution during early rain events, but it can also mean that the nitrogen isn't sufficiently available to support the plant during periods of peak growth. And then, the organic fertilizer might continue to be mineralized at a time when the crop is no longer in the mode to take it up, and so then it can become a potential water pollution issue. Preventing water pollution is a challenge whether or not the fertilizer is organic. The goal of sustainable crop fertilization is to strive for the four R's. Nutrients in the right place, at the right time, in the right amounts, and in the right forms for optimal crop utilization and minimal off-site movement. This is a non-trivial challenge given the wild card of the weather and variable crop needs during the growing season. For some situations, a slow-release fertilizer is a good thing, and there are conventional fertilizers with that kind of property so they can act more like a manure at that point. For some of the more sophisticated modern means of precision fertilization, the highly available synthetic forms are the best. These fertilizers are well suited to something like variable rate fertilization, a method in which the fertilizer is applied at different rates in different parts of the field based on true site-specific crop demand that's based on geo-referenced aerial imaging and past crop yield data. For crops that are irrigated, the synthetic fertilizer can be spoon-fed in the water to fully meet crop needs with minimal potential for having the fertilizer end up someplace else. These more precise and sustainable strategies are far less feasible using only the natural fertilizers allowed for organic farming. So getting the nitrogen to the plant and not into off-site water is one major challenge when it comes to feeding plants. But there's another important environmental issue associated with fertilizers. It has to do with the carbon footprint of the fertilizer. Now, synthetic nitrogen is made by starting with the relatively cheap energy source of natural gas. So that means its production is based on a fossil fuel, and that has a greenhouse gas carbon footprint. So the natural gas that it takes to, say, make 150 pounds of synthetic nitrogen to grow uh, an acre of corn in the Midwest has a carbon footprint equivalent to driving a passenger car you know, like 190 to 400 miles, and that's for a car that gets 20 miles a gallon. When that nitrogen feeds a crop, which then feeds an animal, the portion that remains in the manure, blood, or bones is the organic-approved fertilizer, and that nitrogen can be used again without any new round of fossil fuel usage. However, that doesn't avoid the whole greenhouse gas issue. When something like manure is stored, and particularly when it is composted for the sake of food safety, the nitrogen is still there, but some of the carbon in the manure is converted into methane by bacteria that grow during the part of the composting process when the oxygen supply runs short. Methane is more than 20 times as potent as carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. So, in a big pile of manure or any organic waste stream, it isn't really possible to prevent there being microsites where there's not enough oxygen, particularly during the peak demand for oxygen during that composting process. And that means that quite a bit of methane is emitted during the composting so that the carbon footprint of that kind of fertilizer per pound of nitrogen 
is 7 to 14 times as big as that for the fertilizers made via that Haber-Bosch process. Going back to our 20-mile-a-gallon car example, the extra carbon footprint of getting the 150 pounds of nitrogen from the compost instead of synthetic nitrogen is equivalent to driving an extra 2,400 to 2,600 miles. Now, on one hand, it might seem like we're stuck with a carbon footprint issue whether farmers are using Haber-Bosch nitrogen or getting it from composted manure. But there's a potential solution out there that I stumbled across a few years ago. People who were developing wind or solar-generated electricity in remote areas off the grid would run into issues of timing, when the sun and the wind didn't line up with when there was a demand for the power. So they needed a way to store the energy. And one possibility was to take that electricity and use it to do electrolysis of water and generate hydrogen. Now, hydrogen is kind of a dangerous thing to store, so people thought, what if we turn that hydrogen into ammonia using the Haber-Bosch process? The natural gas used in large-scale fertilizer production is really just used as a source of hydrogen. And so the hydrogen generated from water by electricity could serve the same goal. Now, commercial fertilizer production today is, is done on a very large scale for efficiency purposes. But a few different groups have now come up with small-scale processes that could work for a small wind farm or maybe a solar installation. Also, ammonia can be used to power modified diesel engines. So the U.S. military has actually been doing some work on this idea so that they might have a way to generate fuel for something like a military convoy in a remote place. What would be really cool is if this process could be refined so that a single farm with a windmill or a remote village in Africa with a windmill or a solar panel could make their own nitrogen fertilizer for that local crop. The ammonia could be converted to more stable forms of fertilizer like nitrate or urea. And the other big plus would be that the nitrogen in that case would have been made using renewable energy sources, and thus it would have zero carbon footprint. Ironically, because a chemical process would be used in this case, this local environmentally ideal fertilizer would probably not qualify as organic. But, as with all the forms of nitrogen, by the time the plant is absorbing them, they're all the same. The plant wouldn't care. So maybe this is a bit more about fertilizer than you ever wanted to know, but nitrogen is an extremely important element for feeding humanity, and experts continue to find precise and innovative methods for the least environmental impact possible. You can follow me on Twitter at GrapeDoc, at G-R-A-P-E-D-O-C, and visit my blog at www.popagriculture.com.